essentiality of being baptized in Jesus' name and receiving the Holy Ghost and why these things are essential. And this, this is, these, are, these are topics that are very relevant for the day and age that we're living in. Uh, you understand today that, that identity is, per, is important. Identity is important. Um, in, in the world that we live in today, we see a loss of identity. We see a blurring and a removing of distinctions of organizations. And, and, and no longer do you see, even in the denominational world, there's an embracing of ecumenicalism where people say it's all right, just we'll be hand in hand and brothers and brothers and sisters and sisters. But, so there's a loss of distinction and identity in the world. Uh, the most severe form of this distortion is the sin, the base sin of homosexuality, a total loss of, of identity. And we understand today that identity is, is important. People get lost when they're not able to identify themselves, identify the way that they came. And so today we're studying these topics for the sole purpose of, of, of strengthening our belief and trying to remove any type of, of uh, a void of understanding or any type of confusion. We want to remove this and let this be solid in our minds. Amen. It's important that we train up this next generation to know the Word of God and to respect the Word of God, to hide it deep in their hearts. Amen. And so I believe this is a very effective conference, and I'm thankful for your participation, your support. And uh, Brother Kilman is going to come, and he's going to he's going to he's going to start the first topic on the Godhead. Uh, this session is going to be about New Testament language, uh, the father-son language. In your folder, you'll find three pamphlets, and, and they may, you may have to flip them around, but they're in order. The first topic that we're going to cover today is understanding father-son language in the New Testament. Amen. A very, a very uh, wonderful session, I believe. This is, this, is a, this is a topic that has brought confusion to young converts' minds. And, uh, but Brother Kilman's going to shed some light on that. So as he comes, why don't we give uh, the Lord a hand clap and thank him one more time for the ability to hear his word. Well, praise the Lord, everybody. It is good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. I love to teach. I do this all the time. I can't believe they pay me to do it. It's incredible. Um, I would do it anyway. But uh, they, they actually uh, uh, pay me up, uh, up in Indiana to do a little teaching. I love the Word of God. And so um, the best thing you can do in terms of uh, knowing who you are and having the confidence to face the day is to see that your opinions are not just rooted in speculation or, or, or preference. So when they're banging the table for homosexuality and saying you Bible thumpers need to just step back and, and let us have the day, you should say, well, what are you arguing from? What's your base of authority, by the way? You know, we, we base our uh, belief on the Word of God. We can point to research and things that validate and vindicate the word of God. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you have to have a source of authority too. Amen. Amen. Well, I am happy to be here. Thank you, Brother Palmer, for this opportunity to come again. I appreciate your foresight and forethought. And uh, not everybody can make it to uh, Bible college. And there are saints that, you know, settings like this where uh, ministers bring uh, people and grab little tools. And if I can do that today, uh, I'd like to hand you some tools to help equip and train and uh, make it happen. Because the, we're, we, we're in a great fight, uh, and a, but we're living in a great day for it. It's a great day to be an apostolic. Amen. And um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to contain myself. <clears throat> 
I tend to, I tend to be animated. So if you're not a morning person, I will not be offended if you move back a couple of pews now. Um, but I enjoy teaching the word of the Lord. So what I, what I want to tackle first of all, and I love talking about the Godhead, uh, is uh, understanding father-son language uh, in the New Testament. The big question for me, if I got one question again and again and again, is uh, I get the freshman in at IBC or if I'm teaching a Bible study or, or even teaching at Calvary on occasion, uh, one question that I get a lot is, why is there father-son language in the New Testament? What, what is the reason for it? It seems to confuse us. Why is this even in the Bible? And I won't spend a whole lot of time here because I did it last year. But I tell you, the only reason there's a lot of confusion is because we have something today that the apostles did not have. It was developed over time. Uh, there was a, about three landmark events in its development. And finally, in 381, at the Council of Constantinople, they, they actually formed a full working doctrine of the Trinity. And that's why, that's why there's so much confusion today. Because they didn't have a Trinity to confuse them. As a matter of fact, we got, I got some fun books, some uh, research that a, uh, a man, a converted Sikh is doing. His name's Kulwant Bora. And he shows that all of the first popes, and we thought there was only two, but there were the three of the first ones endorsed Jesus' name baptism. And so there's some fun cutting-edge research out there that's a lot of fun. And uh, maybe in a, I, I don't know if we'll leave time for questions or not, but we'll, uh, we'll see if you have questions. I would love to talk maybe at the end. But why is there father-son uh, language in the New Testament? Why does the, the epistles read like this? Grace be unto you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. H- have, you, have you ever been reading along and you, and you trip over a scripture and you're like, hmm, what does that mean? All right, and we're going we're gonna to talk about that. And, and uh, what, what we see in these writings of the apostles, they're disclosing the glory of the incarnation, but more than just the mighty God in Christ. What they're talking about is, is this other aspect of the Godhead that we don't treat that much, and we should. Okay? Because it's, it's right to say there's one God and that one God came, robed himself in flesh and came and walked among us. That's true. But we also need to say that, that he came as man. And we're going to spend a little time talking about high priestly language, what that would look like, or, or to say it another way, the son of man as intercessor. Right, and I'll try to behave in, when we're doing it. So if you'll go in your Bible to Daniel chapter 7, I'm going to teach a little bit of a lesson that I first heard taught by a Presbyterian minister. His name is Donald Barnhouse. Uh, his uh, father, Donald Barnhouse Sr., actually uh, wrote a lot of commentaries, but his son out on the East Coast is now teaching oneness. Help me, Brother Palmer. All right. I'm going to trick the sound man back here. We'll see. Yes, sir. Daniel chapter 7. Let's go about verse 9. Forgive me. I sprung that on him. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. And I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. 
a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. And I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. Okay, good. Now here, what we find in this passage is the Bible is talking about the ancient of days. But read down, skip down a little past that, that little eschatology piece and get down to the son of man. I saw in the night visions and behold one... Son of man came with the clouds of heaven yes. and came to the ancient of days. Okay, so you have the son of man coming to the ancient of days. Uh-huh. And they brought him near before him and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Good. Good, let's stop right there. All right, now here's the thing. What your friends will say, wonderful Trinitarian friends will say, is look, right there, there's the Trinity. Now, your first question should be, okay, where is the missing Holy Ghost? Right, because all of this language, and even Donald Barnhouse Jr. said, if you look at it, what you find is two things contrasted in this passage. He said, are there three persons? No, he says. At best, you have here two somethings. Now, the question is, is it two persons? Are we dithyous? We believe in two gods. Or is it two something else? All right, so we would say clearly there's two things being presented in this passages. We would say as oneness people, one, the first thing, is what God did as deity. But the second thing is what God did and could only do, by the way, as the man, Jesus. All right, now I'm going to prove that that's true. All right, so who is being pictured here? Well, we heard Brother Palmer reading, and he said we, we find the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days, we get his characteristics listed there. He has a garment that's white as snow. The hair of his head's like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A, fire, a fiery stream issues from before him, and the books were opened. All right, so that's a picture of the Ancient of Days. Now, hang on to those pieces because that's going to be very, very important when we get to the book of Revelation. All right, now, and who else is being pictured here? The second is the Son of Man. What characteristics are listed for the Son of Man? Well, first of all, the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days, and there is given to him dominion. Now, I have to, at some point, teach you the Trinity so you can understand oneness better. All right, now, in the Trinity, they say they're co-equal, co-eternal, co-substantial. All right, how can one person in the Trinity, if they're co-equal, having the same power, give another person in the Trinity power and dominion? All right, this cannot be about a Trinity. Because then there would, not, there would be no co-equal trinity and you'd have subordinationalism. How many of you work and you got people that work under you? Anybody got are you, There are people under you. All right, so your authority is greater. All right, so that means that this would break the notion of co-equality in the trinity unless it's talking about something else. It's talking about the man that God would come, become. 
See, that's what you have to understand what's going here. And it says all people, nations, and languages should serve who? Him. Why not serve them? All right? All right, now I'm going to tell you that's a big deal. All right, we're going to look at it. Okay, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion uh, which shall not pass away and his kingdom that, uh, which shall not be destroyed. is, In other words, it's eternal and it's indestructible. Whose kingdom? This son of man. All right, now I'm going to try not to jump ahead to my... Uh, I'm going to try to behave. All right, is this a literal picture of heaven? My wonderful Trinitarian friends would say that I went to seminary with, they would say, absolutely, yes, that's a literal picture of heaven. And, I, and we ask oneness people, they say, no, this is not a literal picture of heaven. So how do we know which is right? How do we know that, that which of these interpretations are correct? Well, let's look into the New Testament because we can find in the book of Revelation the very same thing, the very same event described in the book of Revelation and Revelation chapter 5. Brother Palmer, could you go there for me, please? All right? Now, here's the trick. When we look at this, at the end of it, we're going to see that this is about Christ the man. All right? Okay, what, what are you talking about, Brother Kilman? Well, let's look at it. Let's start about verse 1. We'll go through about verse 5 or so. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written. Within. Yeah, see, a book's written, right? That's the same thing going on in the The books are open, right? You know the context is the same. This is a picture, and, and it's about this uh, a vision that's, that is exactly the same thing happening in Daniel chapter 7. Read. Within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. Uh-huh. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book? Okay, who is worthy? Now, see, here's where, if, if, I don't know if you write in your Bible, but if you write in your Bible, just underline these key phrases because here's the problem. When our wonderful Trinitarian friends approach the Bible, and I did this last year, forgive me for repeating a little bit, is they have a lens on their face on their, that, that, that skews their vision called the Trinity. And when they read these texts, they gloss over certain little key words and phrases and only see what they want to see. I'll prove that's true. Read. To loose the seals thereof. And no man in heaven... No who was... No what? No man. All right, say man. man. Not God. This cannot be talking about God the Son. By the way, that's an unbiblical phrase. The only phrase you'll find in the Bible is the Son of God because it's about the man that God became. All right? The man. No man was found worthy. Okay, read. Nor on earth, neither under the earth. All right, not on earth, and not under the earth, not somebody alive, not somebody dead. Read, I'm sorry. Was able to open the book. Yeah. Neither the book thereupon. Right. And I wept much because no man was found worthy John weeps, yeah. to open and read the book. Yeah. Neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Weep not. Behold the lion oh, of the oh, tribe. Go slow right here. Behold the lion of the tribe of. Now, why does he have to be of the tribe of Judah? I wish I had time to, man, I wish I, I teach a whole, sem- you know what it's like, Brother Anderson. I, I, I teach a whole semester on this. I have to resist the urge not to say everything I'd love to say about the Godhead in this session. 
But when you take Jesus to the, to the baptism and he's being anointed, uh, and he's, uh, when he's quoting that particular Psalm chapter two, a coronation Psalm where you would crown the king and you would say, this is my beloved son, who this man that's become the king, my representative. And he's going to be not just a king. He's going to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Why is he anointed? Because all kings are anointed. Right now, I'm going to tell you, I have to, Jesus' name, help me uh, keep on track here. But I'll just tell you when, you, when you strip away this notion of fighting with the Trinity, you can understand exactly what's going on in the baptism because he said, I come to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Well, he wasn't baptized for sin, was he? He came to be three things, prophet, priest, and king. A prophet is not God, but the voice of God. See, that's why he had to be a man. And in order for him to be a priest, by the way, a priest could only start their ministry minimum age at age 30. And then that priest, when he was ushered into his office, had to be anointed and then had to be washed or baptized. I came here not to wash away my own sins or to disclose some radically new notion in the Godhead. I came to step into my priestly office as the man, Jesus. That's why the Bible says there's one mediator between God and men. The man, not the second person of the Trinity. The man, Christ Jesus. And by the way, that could only be a man. And that's why when he says he's going to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords, I wish I had time to go into it all, but I don't today. But this is what you find. I mean, he's saying he, this in this particular passage, if he's going to be the king, you got to go back to Psalm 22 and Isaiah, and we're going to look there today, and show how he became king. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of who? Not the root of deity, the root of David. Why? Because he's a man. Why do you think the Gospels spend so much time showing you that the lineage is correct? Because he had to be a particular man in a particular lineage because God made promises. And see, the devil's a thief and a robber and a liar. He can violate God's law all the time, but God's got to play by his own rules. And he had to step into the office of the man. And when he couldn't find a man who could do it and was worthy to do it, he said, I won't let hell have the last say. I'll come in and step in myself. To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto unto him who themselves? No, himself. That's right. I'm going to try to behave. Probably not going to work. All right, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Yeah? Read, I'm sorry. Hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. That's right. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne. All right, wait, wait, wait. In the midst of the throne, we're going to turn around and forgive me, Pastor. We're going to see Aslan, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's what we're going to see. All right, tell me about how this golden mane is huge and he's roaring fierce. Tell me how he's going to be the conquering king. See, here's the problem. Jesus, man, Lord, help me. This is so hard. He walks into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry. They're throwing down those palm branches. Why? Because they want him to be like the Hasmonean kings. Those kings that threw off Greece for a little while and and, and resisted through guerrilla warfare. And they're saying, we want you to throw off Rome. 
We want you to come in and be the conquering king. And he says, I'm going to be the king, but I'm not going to be on a war charger. He comes in on a beast of burden. Why? Because I'm going to conquer your enemies, but not Rome. I'm going to conquer death, hell, and the grave. How am I going to conquer? I'm not going to conquer as a war general, but as a suffering servant who's going to die in your place. I'm supposed to teach today. Fire away. Keep reading. And of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. Wait, wait. Are you reading that right? Mm-hmm. What kind of version are you reading out of? Is that a good version? King James. Okay. <laughs> Forgive me. The only version. All right. He says, I see the lion in the tribe of Judah. But then he sees a, a lamb. Uh-huh. How right. is he the lion? By being the lamb. Stood a lamb as it had been slain. Having wait, wait, wait. You, you not only do you call him a lion, he's a, a lamb that, that had been slain? Yeah. Standing? Read. Having seven horns and seven eyes. Okay, now it's just getting really weird. He's got seven eyes and seven horns. All right, now what are you saying? Now this is what I want you to do. It's the same thing going on in Daniel chapter 7, right? The context is the same. So let's look at it. So the Bible says he, God is looking for someone to open the book. He needs a man or a human being. He, he's got to be, he op, it's opened by the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. This is clearly not the second person of the Trinity. It's the man Jesus. How do you know that? Because no Trinitarian I've ever met says when I get to heaven, I'm going to see God the Son as a slain lamb standing with seven eyes and seven horns. So it cannot be a literal picture of what you're going to see when you get to heaven. It's a metaphorical picture showing what God purposed as deity but what he accomplished as man. we'll, we'll, We'll get there. So is this meant to be a picture of heaven? No, he's called a lion, but he's a slain lion standing with seven eyes and seven horns. No. But this man, who is the slain lamb, can come and take the book out of the right hand of him that sits on the throne. (laughs) See, it's what he could do by dying in your place. And look, this is not small potatoes. It's not just the way in that some abstract doctrine of God to, to kind of define ourselves against every other church in town. It touches the fundamentals. It touches salvation because there's only one man that died for you, honey, and there's neither is there salvation in any other for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's why you got to be baptized in Jesus' name. Because that's the high priestly role. That's the slain lamb that died in your place. That's why if you're not baptized in Jesus' name, I don't have the right to look at Jesus and say, I don't care what you did on the cross. You've got to accept me on my own terms. No, 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 no. You've got to go down on water in Jesus' name. Okay. I'm on, I ain't working. I'm trying to behave. It ain't working. So here's the question. Are Daniel 7 and Revelation 4 depictions of a literal picture when you get to heaven? No. Like I said, no Trinitarian I know. No one I've ever asked, no one would say this. As a matter of fact, that's one of the things that helped convince Donald Barnhouse Jr. He said this cannot be a literal. He said this is a metaphorical picture of the man Jesus conquering as the lion by being the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Do you think hell would back up and do Calvary different if it could? 
its greatest defeat because they forgot when Jesus said, if I be lifted up. See, that's about the man, Jesus, the man dying in your place, that perfect man that you could never be. There's only one man that's ever kept the law perfectly. His name was Jesus, and he died in your place so you could stand with him in that place of perfect communion with God. We're going to get there. Right, so what are you saying, Brother Kilmore? Well, I'm going to throw a word at you today. I, I, I do this a lot. For, forgive me. I just don't want people talking down to you. Did you, Brother Anderson, you can testify to this or you can agree or feel free to agree or not agree. But most of the time, uh, scholars will use language a lot to exclude people from the con- conversation. And it's just like when we say things like epistem, well, epistemologically speaking, you know, and you're like, what? The old timers used to say it this way, son, read the Bible. It'll shed the light, some light on those commentaries. You know what they were talking about? Epistemology. And they may not, may not have known the terms, but they were brilliant. Their arguments were incredible. All right, so what, what do you mean by epistemology? How do you acquire knowledge? How do you rightly get to the knowledge that God intends for us? And how do, in other words, uh, how do you understand how knowledge comes to you and get the right interpretation? Well, it's clearly not taking second to fourth century philosophy, reading it into the New Testament and destroying the Old Testament revelation of God. You got to start with the Old Testament notion. 3,000 plus verses in the, in, in the, uh, you just can't get around it saying there's one God. 3,000 verses. It's kind of like the Bible's on our side. Just be okay. Have a little faith, a little courage. I don't care if they got a PhD or an XYZ. Some of you have more truth in terms of understanding the Godhead than someone with a PhD. Don't be, don't be intimidated. My wonderful uh, wife's uncle, uh, uh, she's got a missionary uncle, but James Turner, his brother, uh, witnessed to a guy, found him in his doctorate program, and what does he do? He pauses everything he's doing right in the middle of his doctorate program, which is a huge process. And instead of writing what he intended to write, he saw the mighty God in Christ. And Brent Graves says, now I'm going to write the God of two testaments and disclose the oneness. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I expect God to do that with you. Yeah. You just go down to Asbury, shake hands with people, and teach. Okay. <laughs> All right, there are two types of scripture when we're talking about the Godhead. Um, two types of scriptures in Christology. I'm going to use these categories, and I, I hope they're helpful to you. The first are passages of identity. What do you mean by that, Brother Kilman? It discloses who Jesus is. He's the mighty God. That's why when we go back to Deuteronomy 6.4, we know that how many gods are there? Uh, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is? That's right. All right, one Lord. All right, Isaiah 9 and 6, you'll have a son. You shall call his name Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the... I thought it was the second person of the Trinity in Jesus. I'm sitting down uh, right before I got here. I was teaching a Bible study with a guy over at Panera Bread, and, and he's a great guy, knew, knew a little language, and uh, he's uh, studied, um, and he's a great debater. It was awesome. But by the end of it, I had it because I could only get him to admit what the Scripture said clearly. But by the end of our Bible study, he was saying, well, I think all three persons of the Trinity can be inside you. I said, now... I said, now you know there's no other Trinitarian in the world that claims that. He said, well, I just got to say what the Bible says. I said, well, good. (laughs) 
All right? So the everlasting Father, Isaiah uh, 44, 24, I, even I, Lord, I spread abroad the heavens by myself. Is there a God beside me? I know not any. All right, they, I'm going to tell you, I don't care which person of the Trinity you think or think speaking in that particular setting, whoever it is looked around and said, ain't nobody else up here. All right, John 10 and 30, I and my Father are one. And I talked about this a little, I think it was Thursday night. But it's, look, here's the problem. I and my Father are one. And then they take up stones to stone him. And he says, Why, what good works are you trying to stone me for? And he said, not because, uh, you, you know, good works. You're blaspheming. You being a man, make yourself God. But in the context, it's more than that. You make yourself who? I am my Father. You make yourself God the Father. Okay, that's not the second person. Okay. All right, Colossians 2, 9. For in him dwelleth the pleroma, the totality. For in him dwelleth all of the fullness. Not a third of God, not a piece of God. The location of God was where? To wit, God was in Christ. Reconciling the world unto himself, not themselves. And see, those are the phrases we just read past and we know them. But you need to underline, it says himself, not themselves. Right? Right? That's how you know. Now, that's passages of identity. Now, we run aisles and speak in tongues on that, and we should. It's absolutely right. But the second is passages of distinction. And this is where sometimes you can give people Holy Ghost hiccups. Like we quote verses sometimes in half measures. And that's not good. We should embrace everything that the Scriptures and run aisles on these same types of verses where he says, uh, wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every other name, that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is. Now we got to finish that. To the glory of God the Father. All right, now what does that mean? We're going to look at it. All right, so passages of distinction, this is what it's saying. These are passages that show what God did, not as deity, but as humanity. Right now, that's what they're writing about. In the New Testament, when they say son, they knew there was one God. They were Jewish people. They knew that there was absolutely one God. What staggered them was the fact that that one God came in flesh. See, you you preach Christ be a stumbling block to the Jews. Why? Because how do you get God in Christ? Not how do you get one person. Right? So uh, let's look at it. Here's what we need to do then. When we're reading, we need to distinguish which we're dealing with and be comfortable with the language of the New Testament. Right? Once you get that, I'm going to tell you, I hope and pray that you will run aisles just as strong on passages of distinction. When, because here's the thing. When you start talking about when God would not ha- let hell have the last say, when you couldn't save yourself, he said, I will come and die in your place. Look, God, the creator of the universe, said, I'm going to come and I'm going to let him spit in my face. I'm going to let him mock me. Now, he was God, folks. And yet he gloried in coming. He endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? For the joy that was set before him. I know that if I suffer and if I do this, I can redeem you unto myself. And it's worth paying any price for. See, we should run aisles on that. We should sing about that. We should dance on that. Why? Because that's just as important as saying he's one God. All right, so where is God's revelation found? Well, it's found in the scripture, right? 
So we have to let the Bible define what we say about the reality of heaven. All right, that said, is there a place where we can go where I can let Scripture speak to Scripture and clarify which of these uh, positions is correct? What's going on in Daniel 7? What's going on in Revelation 5? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Yes, there is. All right? All right, so uh, am I just reading oneness into the text? That is a good and fair question. I hope that we would say, if, if oneness wasn't true, we would convert. Look, if we're, if we're asking Trinitarians to have enough honesty to approach the Bible and bow the knee to Scripture, we would have to have the same type of openness. Okay? All right, so am I just reading oneness into the text? Well, some of my friends have pushed me, and they say, look, if it's not literal in Revelation chapter 5, it's absolutely literal in Daniel chapter 7. And I would say, well, okay, you, you do see it's the same context. It's the same picture. And they would say, yes, but I think it's literal. I said, well, okay, how do I know that I'm right uh, and they are missing what Scripture's teaching here? Is there some place I can go and, and, and kind of define this? There absolutely is. And this is what convinced uh, Donald Barnhouse is when he read Revelation chapter 1. All right, let's go there. <laughs> Start, can you read for me again? Brother Paul, thank you, sir. I, I sprung this on you. Forgive me. Revelation chapter 1. Start about verse 11. All right. Saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Mm -hmm. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and Smyrna, unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardius and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. There wasn't no town name like Jamestown or nothing. It's all these hard names. Yep. It's tongue tied. That's all right. right. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. Yeah. All right, now who's speaking? If you've got your Bible open, you can see in the context, the words are in red, right, if you've got a red letter Bible. All right, so who's speaking? Jesus, good. All right, read for us. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Uh -huh. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. Pause. All right, great. Now we're going to get the description of the Son of Man, right? All right, good. All right, so what we're going to find is we're going to look at these characteristics in, in Revelation chapter 1 and find out who it matches in Daniel chapter 7. So here we have this passage of identity. He says, we have one like the Son of Man. Read. Clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Uh -huh. His head and his hairs were like white like wool. Wait, wait, wait. I thought we were talking about the Son of Man. Looks a whole lot so far like who? The Ancient of Days. God, that's right. Read. His head and his hair is white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes being as a flame of fire. Yeah. And his feet like unto fine brass. And they turn, uh, and they burn in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of many waters. Uh-huh. And he had in the right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Okay, I, no, good. That, uh, read, read one more. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Yeah. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Okay, now pause. If you were in a Trinitarian church and he said, I am the first and the last, what would you think he's talking about? God the Father, God the Spirit. I'm sorry, forgive me. I am he that liveth and was dead. 
And behold, I am alive forevermore. Right, pause. Now, what do you see here? Every commentary you pick up will tell you this is the ancient of days. But what do you see here disclosed in the Bible? A blended picture of the Son of Man and the ancient of days. It's showing that Jesus is the ancient of days of the Old Testament. He's the one God of the Old Testament, but in all of his glory, because he said, I am he also that was dead and am alive forevermore. Not only is he God, he's the man that won the victory for you. And here we find the passage that shows we're not misreading the Bible. And he has the keys of hell and in death. Why? Because in the garden, Adam was commissioned to be God's vice regent. You rule the earth. I give you absolute dominion. Who? The psalm says it this way. The heaven of heavens are the Lord's, but the earth as he committed into the hands of the children of men. In order for God to win the victory, he had to not just be God. He had to fight as man. And that's why he has the keys of hell and of death. See, you don't have to be intimidated because the Bible says father and son. Just understand what the revel, understand the language that they're reveling in. That he won the victory by being the lamb, the man, the priest, the, the prophet, the king. All of that by being the man, Jesus. Right, and that's where the understanding is. So these blended images is a clear picture of the Son of Man in the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, blended into the person, not persons, the person of the resurrected Christ. This is how you know your view is correct and, and because John sees in heaven Jesus revealed in all of his glory. Right? He is the Son of Man, who has the keys of death, the hell, and the grave, his kingdom is eternal. Or to say it like Paul said, writing, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. All right? Now that's our verse, all right? our revelation. All right, so let me do one more thing, and then I know we got lunch, so I know I'm between you and pizza. So I'll, I'm going to hurry through Philippians chapter 2. All right, so what I'd like to do then is move us towards a full understanding of Christology or, or the Godhead. I want us to move towards having an, an understanding where we read scriptures not in halves or when the preacher gets up and says something like Jesus says, Father glorified me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. We don't go, is that the Trinity? No, what glory? And by the way, that's prayer. And if they're co-equal, how can one person be praying to another person? Prayer is a petition for a higher source to come and help. Even J. Vernon McGee. How many ever heard of J. Vernon McGee? Through the Bible program, right? Even J. Vernon McGee says, look, if one God prays to another God, he ungods himself. That's true. Why you quote him? Because he's not oneness. But he's seen the truth in that. Every prayer that Christ prayed was as a man. And when he said, Father, glorify thou me with the glory I had with you before the world was, what's he talking about? The lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. When God saw, we would break it. Now, was he eternally slain? No. But he had the plan in mind because he knew we would fail. But God's not irresponsible. Jesus said, if you don't count the cost to build a tower, you're going to be ashamed. You think God has any less foresight? He looked down through the annals of time and saw the fall and made a remedy. Right. 
That's why the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. I'm not going to create one thing until I know I can have it come out in a victory. That's what Jesus was talking about. All right, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Here's the key. You need to understand Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. He's not a 50-50. Don't do that. That's bad. Right, so uh, we find Paul, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. Now I'm trying to behave. I'll try to calm down. All right, we find in Paul, uh, he's kind of preaching along. It's like listening to a preacher preach, and all of a sudden he'll come up with, say something like this. I went to a meeting one night, and my heart wasn't right. But something got a hold of me, right? You know what he's doing, right? He's up there preaching away, and he's quoting a song. Well, this is exactly what's happening in Paul and Philippians. It has meter in the Hebrew. Uh, it has parallelism in the he- I'm sorry, the Greek. has parallelism in the Greek. We know he's quoting an early hymn of the church. Now, he does this in multiple places, right? And so this is probably some of the earliest uh, Christian uh, stuff we have in the Bible because he's quoting an earlier source as he's writing. All right, so let's look at what, uh, what they're writing. There are two particular images in the text, all right? The first is Adam, and I'm going to prove that that's true. And the second is the suffering servant from Isaiah's servant psalms. Psalm 51, 52, and 53. I'm sorry, Isaiah, what did I say, Psalm? (laughs) His servant psalms, Isaiah 51, 52, 53. He was, what? Wounded Wounded for our. He was bruised for our. The chastisement of our peace was upon. Uh It proves God to bruise him. We're, that's what this is all about. And we're going to see that in Philippians 2 when we look at it. Now, I'm, I'm going to throw a term at you. Paul uses here uh, what's called Adamic Christology or, or, or an Adam Christology. What does that mean? Well, if you look at the book of Romans, I know Brother Anderson's got a wonderful series on Romans. We need more people publishing. It's at the, I'm, re- I'm ready. I'm ready to have. Let me know when it comes out. I want to buy a copy. We need apostolic writers. Uh, so we have these wonderful gifts in our movement like Brother Anderson who's uh, done all this research and he's compiled and it's about to be written. I'm sure you'll be blessed. So when it comes out, grab it. Right? Better than John MacArthur? Yeah. Sorry, I slid that in. It's just terrible. Okay. All right, Romans uh, plays back and forth with Adam and Jesus. By one man, sin came into the world, right? By, uh, by one man, many were made sinners and by one man, uh, many were set free, right? Plays back and forth. The first Adam busted it. The second Adam, or the final Adam, fixed it. Right? Now that's what it's about. Paul's contrasting what happened in Adam. All have sinned. All have come into bondage. But by this, this other Adam that's coming, uh, he's going to fix it. And that's what it's about. 1 Corinthians 15 contrasts the eschatological difference between the two. It deals with the end time. You're standing with God in eternity based upon the... What, what Adam did to bring sin in the world and then what Jesus did to ultimately uh, win the victory. So anywhere you hear man, an image with Paul, it's pointing back to Genesis 3. All right, so to say it another way, this notion of Adamic Christology is in the background every time you hear a man, an image. Uh, so when he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. What does that mean? Well, form in the Greek is morphe. I'm going to throw a little language at you this morning. It's okay. It's fine. Just run with me. It'll be good. 
right? Form is morphe. It's the same as image when you get to the Hebrew in Genesis chapter 1. So being in the form of God is the same thing he's saying. Guess what? He came in the image of God. You ready? We only preach it at Christmas, which is terrible. God, the, the moment that the whole of creation has been waiting on, we still divide the calendar that way. B.C., A.D. The moment that creation has been waiting on, God will not let go unannounced. So the angelic choir shows up and finds anybody they can to sing to, even if it's just shepherds on the hillside. And they say, behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, not even just you Jews. What's the glad tidings of great joy? You ready? For unto you is born a Savior. God legally stepped into the arena by being man. See, right there on the battlefield, he steps forward to take on your enemies and my enemies by legally stepping into the arena as man. All right, man, that's exactly right. All right, so like Adam, Jesus was created uh, in the image of God, but made of himself no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. All right, so what does that mean, make of himself no reputation? Well, it's like Jesus. The Bible says he lowered himself. Remember when the disciples are arguing. <laughs> They're arguing about who's the best. Who's going to be the biggest, baddest, and, you know, get the rule. I want to sit on your right hand. I want to sit on your left. I don't know who was arguing for that left position. <laughs> Terrible. I know about goats and Revelation being on the left. That's a bad place. All right? And they're thinking prominence and power. And look, here's what happened. Catch the picture. They're, they're there at the Last Supper, and they're arguing so much over power and position that, that none of them will do the social custom, the common courtesy of washing people's feet. Why? It's the job of the lowest servant in the house usually, but it's a common courtesy. And they forgot leadership was about serving. And so Jesus says, look, you call me Lord, Master, and I am. How am I Master? I'm going to show you how I'm your Lord. Girds himself with a towel and starts to wash their feet. And Peter's like, no way. Why? Because you're my Lord. How can you wash my feet? And he says, look, if you ready? If you don't let me serve you, if you won't let me be your suffering servant, you can have no part with me. The Son of Man not, didn't come to be served, but to serve. I come to, look, see, that's what it's about. It's not about him being Lord by being some conquering king and bless God, I have the position. He's the Lord by being the servant of all. The reason he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords is because he paid the price to be that. He served you. He washed your sins away. And I know, and I feel sometimes like Peter, Lord, I don't deserve it. You should probably take somebody else. You should choose somebody else to preach. I know I don't deserve you. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. But he said, just that's okay. I didn't come to be served. I come to serve you. So let me wash you. Let me make you a part of the kingdom, Peter. That's what it's about. He made of himself no reputation. He could, but here's the point. Why? Because he couldn't point to himself and uh, bring glory to himself as a man. He could have walked around and said, guess what? I'm God in flesh right here. 
listen to me. You better listen to me, bless God, you know, because I'm the ruler coming. Now, he couldn't do that and fulfill his role. What role? The role of suffering servant. See, that's the whole point. He came to make of himself no reputation. He came to fulfill the role that would win the ultimate battle. And so he had to walk humbly. We'll, we'll talk about it. Let's go a little further. That's why John, uh, writing in John 16, 25, records Jesus saying this, These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. What is he saying? All right, well, look at that word, uh, paromia, in the Greek. It's, it's veiled speech. He said, I, I'm speaking to you in veiled speech right now. He spoke as if the Father was distant. Why? So he would not violate his role as perfect man. He said, but there's going to come a time when every eye will see. And I'll speak to you plainly of the Father. I won't have to be in this role of suffering servant and make of myself no reputation, but every knee will bow and every tongue confess that I've won the victory as a man and glorify God the Father. Glorify me. See, that's the point. Okay. I wish, man, I wish I could spend all day here. All right, but made of himself no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant. Look, here it is. He grasped or took the form of a servant. And here's the parallelism in the Greek. This is why it's so beautiful. He says he, he had the form of Adam, but he took the form of a servant. Choice. You see, just like Adam had a choice, this man had a choice. And he was made in the image of God. He, he, was, he had the form of Adam, just like Adam came in the image of God. But he took, he chose to make of himself no reputation. He took the form of a servant. But made of himself no reputation. He, he took upon him the form of a servant. And made in the likeness of men. What does that mean? Adam was tempted to eat of the tree, right? To grasp at knowledge and disobedience to God. To not let God define him in the parameters of his life. By the way, that's the fundamental issue of Christianity. Are you going to come to God and say, you are God and I am not. You set the fundamentals of my life. All right, so that's where Adam was. He was tempted to, to eat. That's why Hosea says, uh, but they like men have transgressed the covenant. They, there they have dealt treacherously against me. That means they broke covenant. Men did, right? Chose. All have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. How, anybody here not seen before? Okay, good. No hands. Good. That's like, you know, that's a lie. You know, you're just sitting right there. Just kidding. All right, nobody raise their hands. All right, Jesus then had to pick up where Adam left off. All right, at his baptism then, it's not about disclosing the Trinity. It's about him covenanting. It's about him swearing. It's about him stepping into that role. To fulfill his role, how? As perfect man. See, that's what it's about. It's about Jesus picking up where Adam left off. He had the form of Adam, but he took the form of a servant. That's where he started, right there. All right? You okay? Okay, good. All right, All right so, I mean, I wish, uh, this is terrible to try to do this. Psalm 22. Was it, how many of you were here last time when I talked last year? Okay, if you haven't read Psalm 22, just work through Psalm 22. Yeah. First half is a hymn of suffering. Yeah. It's
it's a perfect picture and a prophecy of the cross written a hundred years before, or a thousand years before Christ by a man who'd never seen uh, crucifixion once because it hadn't been invented yet. You read it. Man, it's beautiful. But the second half is a hymn of victory, right? The conquering king who's going to receive the kingdom. And see, what he's saying is through this suffering, I will reign. It's the same thing going in Isaiah 49, uh, 50, 52, 14 through 15. All of these past, man, I could have put a ton of them. Messianic prophecies up there. Point to it, you ready? A messianic king who would rule how? And that's why the Jews missed it. So in the wilderness, when the devil comes to Jesus, he's tempting him to take a shortcut. What shortcut? I can give you all of these kingdoms, and you can rule without suffering. If you'll just, you ready, come under my authority, I can let you rule. But what would that have done? It would have been to break covenant just like Adam did, to grasp at parameters outside of the will of God. And if Jesus was going to be the perfect man, he had to pick up and obey right there where Adam failed. How did he fight that battle? It's like fighting somebody with their strong right arm tied behind their back. God came not as deity but as man and whipped the devil left-handed on his own turf in a fallen world, not as God, but as man. All right? Oh, Lord, we could be there all day. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. See, he was in the fashion of a man, but not very many people humble themselves. All right? So he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This is beautiful stair-step down parallelism in the Greek. Look at what he says. God became a man. That's a step down. But more than that, he humbled himself. How did he humble himself? He became obedient to death, even the death of the cross, the, death, the, the, the worst death a human being could ever die. He was obedient then in his role as suffering servant. That's what Paul's saying. He made of himself no reputation. He became a man, humbled himself, humbled himself to death, even the worst death. And that's how he won the messianic king conquering on the cross. All right? That's why the Bible says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Now, I will tell you, when I'm teaching a Bible study, uh, trying to convert a, a pretty savvy Trinitarian, this is where I start. Right here. Okay? Because it's uh, huperuso uh, in the Greek, or uh, you could translate it super exalted or exalted higher than ever before. All right? Now, what does that mean? Here's the typical Trinitarian definition. You have God the Father, and he says in a, in a council with uh, the Trinity, we need salvation, so we'll send down God the Son. All right? And, the, and God the Son's going to go down there. Me and the Holy Ghost get the free uh, ticket. I don't know why one of them didn't go, but, you know, he got the short straw or something. Forgive me for being facetious. Uh, but So we're going to send down God the Son. He's going to accomplish his work, and ultimately, because he did so good, he's going to come back to heaven, and, and ultimately we're going to be co-equal again. Nope. It doesn't work. Not in the language of that text. Why? Because it's huperuso. It's, you ready? Exalted higher than ever before. Because if they were co-equal at one point, they ain't co-equal anymore. 
All right, now this is, and, and this is how you prove that's true. Don't quote me, Bobby Kilman. Don't quote Brother Anderson. Don't quote David Bernard. Don't quote any of those people because they're oneness people and they think they're skewing the text. You ready? Quote James Dunn, a good Baptist uh, theologian that was at Liberty University, one of the most prestigious universities in, uh, uh, you know, in terms of evangelical circles of our day. Liberty University, James Dunn. Or quote Oscar Coleman, Billy Graham's pastor. Quote one of them. Because they would say, look, if that's true, guess what? You can't get there from here. Because when you say it's God the Father, what's going to happen is all of a sudden God the Son's higher than God the Father and definitely higher than God the Spirit. And that's no longer co-equal. All right, so it cannot be about persons in the Trinity. So, good. It's, how many say it's not the Trinity? All right, you show that to them, they go, wow, it's not the Trinity. You're right. All right, so, and I'm going to prove even further that it can't be right because you keep reading. It just gets more and more difficult if you're a Trinitarian to maintain your doctrinal position when the Bible just keeps hammering away at it. All right, but so what is it about? Good. All right, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things of the earth and things under the earth. Is the Father in heaven? Is the Spirit in heaven? Then what are they going to bow to? The name Jesus, is that co-equal? Then you cannot have a trinity in heaven or guess what? You can't, look, it just, you either throw away the Bible or you got to throw away your doctrine. Right, that's where the fundamental is right there. I know I'm being over the top. Now, if we had one, if I was in a Bible study with a wonderful Trinitarian, I'd be a little more tactful. I'd phrase it delicately. But, you know, maybe I would say, well, look, it can't be the trinity here, can it? No. Well, then if it can't be the trinity, maybe you can prove it somewhere else, right? But not here. See, I give them a little room to get off the hook. And they're like, because then they admit things. They're like, well, yeah, yeah, it can't be there. It's about the man, Jesus. Good. So let's go somewhere else. All right? So what does it mean? It means God exalted Jesus the man higher than any other human being has been before. All right? What does that mean? This man is in the role of the mediator between God and humanity. I wish I had time to go to Acts and talk about the unpreached verses of Acts chapter 2. That'd be another lesson. I wish I could talk about it all today. But that's why the Bible says that, that, that God has committed unto him, who? The man, what you see now shed abroad. The baptism of the Holy Ghost happened on the day of Pentecost because we have a mediator. No man can come unto the Father, Jesus said, except by me. But when you come through me, he that hath the Son hath the Father also. We're not Jesus only. We're Jesus everything. Because when you get him, you get the Father. You get the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ, Jesus the man, Christ the anointed one. Man, I wish I had time to stop right there. Look, anointing is about empowering. When you call him Christ, you're calling him the empowered one. Who empowers him? That can't be God empowering God. Okay, I'll leave that alone. All right, to the glory of God the Father. This is, why not to the glory of God the Spirit? Why not to the glory of God the Trinity? Because there's not one. All right, Jesus, that Jesus is Lord or Kyrios in the Greek. That's literally, he's Yahweh of the Old Testament who's become our Redeemer. He's become the Master, the Lord, and the Ruler. Okay, I have to, are, are we out of time? Okay. 
All right, so the man, the perfect man, then in covenant. Why did he do this? Why did this man, why did God as man come down and do this? So that we could be co-joiners of covenant, uh, so that he, rather, could be co-joiners of covenant with us. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 29, and Philippians 1, 23. I'll have to let you do that on your own time. This is what he did. He, as a man, made covenant. Hebrews is clear. He cut a covenant. See, this is what happened in the Old Testament. They, 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 had, uh, they had people that would swear covenant all the time. They'd enter into agreements. It's like today. You got to get uh, two, uh, two New York lawyers and a Philadelphia lawyer to keep them honest, and that's how you swear agreement. What well, was the same in the ancient Near East? They were notorious for going back on their word. So what they would do is they would cut a covenant. They would say, you always cut a covenant, barat karit, uh, karat barit in the Hebrew. You would cut a covenant. That means you would take an animal, cut it, divide it in half, and then you would walk through that covenant and you would say, may I be like this sacrifice if I violate it? And guess what? We violated it. And we couldn't pay that. Look, you, if you try to approach a holy God with broken covenant, you're going to pay the price for sin. A holy God always does what's right. But if somebody else pays the price of broken covenant, then positionally he can say, now that I'm in the place of covenant, because I don't have to die for my own sins, I can die for your sins, I can reach out with this hand and hold covenant with this hand and pull you right in. I see, that's what this is about. He is a man made covenant. So when it says he was super exalted, it means not some geographical thing. Son, you go down there and then you come back up here. That language doesn't work. But to the man, the second Adam or the final Adam, the sinless man, instead of you being just in the image of God, stoop lower than you have to. Stoop lower than is required because you don't have to die for your own sin. But if you choose to be the suffering servant, Stoop lower than you have to. What does that look like? He stoops to the morphe of a doulos, the, the form of a servant. He stoops to the role of a servant, even to the death, the ugly death of the cross. Wherefore, for this reason, God highly exalts him. Higher than any other man has been in the entirety of creation. He's in a, he's in a place where who's never been? Adam couldn't do this for you. Until I make thine enemies thine footstool. <laughs> because a man has never been qualified to handle death, hell, and the grave until now. All right? I'm going to tell you that's where it's at. So we know Jesus is God. We know that God was in Christ. Not a part of God. Not a third of God. All of God was in Christ. We know that. But geographically then, these passages of distinction don't make sense. Okay? All right, so we need the entire language of the Old Testament, covenant language, where man swears covenant, where man broke covenant, and where a man had to fix it. That's what we need to know what's happening in the man who is God, but who ascends to heaven, and not just his role as God, but also as the man who's now redeemer, who's now savior, savior who's now intercessor. So there's, you know, you want to preach a good sermon, I'll give you a good sermon. There's something between you and God today. And you better be thankful there is. It's called the sacrifice of the man, Jesus. They sing songs like, he sees me through the blood. That's right. 
right. I, man, I wish I could uh, stop there and talk all day. But First Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God. That's an affirmation of all of the Old Testament uh, understanding of God. And, and here's the key, one mediator. Between God and men. And this is what you need to underline. You need to highlight in your Bible the man, Christ Jesus. Not God the Son, my friend. It's not, you need to tell them, look, it's not God the Son, right? He didn't do this as deity. He did it as humanity. He's the man holding covenant with one hand, saying, come and, and, and join me in covenant. No man cometh, he said, unto the Father but by me. So super exalted, highly exalted, uh, is the language of... Uh, of the man, Christ Jesus, is not an embarrassment to us. Father-son language, it's not an embarrassment. It's disclosing the glory of what our God did. And we ought to revel in this language, language because it's what the man Jesus did, who was, lower, who was lower than the lowest could be, who became exalted for us so he could bring us into that covenant relationship with God. All right, let me give you fat, three fast little points then. He became like us, why? so we could become like him. Right? Philippians 3.21 says, Our vile body has been changed like unto his glorious body. I mean, I wish I had time to talk with it. Maybe we'll get to, into that a little bit on holiness. Romans 8.29, that we might be conformed unto what? His likeness. All of the book of Romans shows that we are co-inheritors, Brother Anderson. We stand in covenant because that man invited us into his stead, his place. His sacrifice. Hebrews says that he was created in all points like his brethren. That he as a priest had to be a man. A priest is taken from where? Among men. And he had to suffer like we suffer. He had to learn obedience by the things he suffered. Look, he wasn't playing God. It's not like the little hand puppet. Not my will, thy will be done. That's not what the Godhead is. He became a man and suffered just like you suffer. And the Hebrew says he's able to secure, to secure those of you because he himself suffered. He paid the price uh, to be in that role of mediator of the new covenant. Right? Point, uh, Second Peter says that we, have, uh, we can have his now, his divine nature. We have a body that is not, uh, not going to be just merely mortal. But we have something that's touched and redeemed even in this life. We have uh, been made partakers of his divine nature having escaped the corruption of the world through lust. Or look at Revelation 3.21. Jesus is talking to the churches and he says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, I conquered, and I am positionally in a new place, and am set down with my Father in his throne. What does that look like? You got God the Father, God the Son's going to be sitting on his lap, and a whole lot of us piled on top of Jesus? No, this is positional. Because I am sit, sit with me on my throne. Come join me in my ruling and reigning. If you suffer with me, you will reign with me. Sit positionally with me. And just like I overcame and won the victory as man and am set down positionally in this place of favor on my Father's throne, you have access to. That's what that's about. This is the language of co-joining or being like them. How many thrones are in heaven? There's only one. It's not two thrones and a perch. You know, one for the Holy Ghost to sit on. Forgive me. I'm so sorry. For that. Where is the Holy Ghost in this passage? 
if this is about a trinity. See, all of the language of Father, Son, grace be unto you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you get grace and peace? Not from God the Father because He's holy and He'll judge you because of your sins. But you get grace and peace from God our Father, intention, and the sacrifice of the man who covers your sins, then you can get grace and peace. That's why those those wonderful uh, New Testament epistles are not there to confuse us about the Godhead. It's disclosing how God became a man and won the victory. All right, so are we embarrassed about Jesus praying because it sounds like two persons? Well, guess what? There are passages of identity. That's true. But there are passages of distinction about the man's commissioning for covenant or, or, or being sent. God sent forth his son. Well, look, that sent in this language can't mean from heaven because John 1, 6 says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. You got an eternal cousin? No, it's that sent in this language is about commissioning him to fulfill his role. And by the way, remember, you know, not us. You know, you got a Trinitarian saying if, if it's praying, it has to be about the man, Jesus. Oh, man, I wish I had time to talk about all these. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thine footstool. In the, in the King James, they tip you off that this is the name of God in the Old Testament. yod heh vav in the Hebrew. They tip, they tip you off that this is the name of God by uh, using all caps. So Yahweh or uh, Yahweh said unto my Lord. Now that's not uh, Yahweh in the Old Testament. What is it? It's Adonai, which means Lord or Master or Ruler. The Lord God says to my Master, my Ruler, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thine footstool. Remember Jesus, they're coming to stump him in public, and they said, you know, answer this question. And Jesus says, okay, I'll answer your question if you can answer mine. When David says, God, Yahweh, says to my Ruler, my Master, my King, and that's David speaking, you know, the greatest king that ever lived? Sit at my right hand, you know, this place of favor and power, until I make thine enemies thine footstool. Who is David's king? And they're like, uh, we don't know. He said, I ain't going to answer your question. What was Jesus saying? It was so funny. I think Jesus had a great sense of humor because he's saying it right here because he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Operate in this position of, of favor and power, suffering servant, until I make thine enemies thine footstool. Literally, it's the place in Joshua where he pulls those ten kings out, of, out from the cave that they had conquered, that coalition of kings in the conquest. And Joshua says to all of the, uh, the, the rulers of the tribes, come up and put your foot on their neck, showing that you have total power over them. Make your enemies your footstool. Who did that? It's a prophecy, right? Wait, right back in Genesis. You will, you will bruise his heel. Yeah, you're gonna, he's going to be crucified, but he will crush your head. Who? The seed of the woman, the man, Jesus. All right, man, I wish I had time to talk about that. So why is he praying? Because Psalm 65, 2 says, all flesh must come to God. He had to operate as a man operated. And, and, and that's part of the whole uh, temptation process. Is that some kind of distinction? Yes, it is. 
But it's not persons in the Godhead. It's the same kind of distinction the Bible makes other places when he prays or when he's the man, Jesus. It's talking about the roles or the manifestations of God. All right, so is it hard to defend oneness from these verses? Uh, well, does it mean that God is over here saying, son, sit on my right hand, you know, and, and, and my throne will be over here and your throne will be over there? No, because Revelation clearly shows us there are not two thrones in heaven. It doesn't mean that at all. And by the way, how big is God that you can sit at his right hand? All right, so all of those things we know is metaphorical. There are two reasons for this language. First, the right hand is metaphorical power. Bernard Ram points that out. I can give you lots of Trinitarians that make that argument for us. Language is, necessi- that language is necessary, though, first because it's the language of priesthood. You see, that's it, mediator. The language says there's a man who goes between us and God, and I'm just about done. There, the second reason for this language is because of the language of exaltation, the man Jesus being put in a place no man has ever been. It's necessary because God wasn't put there. The man Jesus was put there, right? He was, was Adam ever at the right hand? No. Hebrews asked unto which of the angels as he said at any time. You know, God's greatest creation, right, in terms of power because he's made him a little lower than the angels. But the angels don't even get to operate here, right? And that's where, what's the message? This man became higher than God's highest creation, the angels. This Adam has been exalted higher than anything ever before. All right, so what does that look like in actuality? What will we see when we get to heaven? I have a book here. I've quoted him once already, but I wanted to bring the book in so you know I'm telling the truth. All right, his name is uh, Criswell, and uh, this is uh, Billy Graham's pastor. And he said in, the, in an interview, uh, someone asked him, they said, uh, this is Patterson interviewing him, said, we know that we will see Jesus when we get to heaven, but will we see God the Father since the scripture says, no man has seen the face of God the Father. Criswell says this, I have always preached that there is one God. We know God is our Father. We know God as our Savior. We know God as our comforter, encourager of our souls. When you get to heaven, you're not going to see three gods. The only God you will ever see is the Lord Jesus who became flesh and blood and was resurrected in a human body. You know what I'd say to that? Amen. All right, and if they're going to call you a heretic, they have to call Billy Graham's pastor one. I tell you what, that'll make a Baptist person nervous. So there it is. Uh, he pastored a huge Baptist church, was actually over one of the, uh, their seminaries, started Criswell Seminary. <clears throat> so it's not about geography. It's not about multiple thrones. It's, about, uh, it's not about a literal picture. It's about the place of exaltation. <clears throat> so how do we balance Jesus being man and God? Here's the mystery of godliness. It's not God the Son leaving and becoming a man and how the second person of the Trinity worked everything out. It's the mystery of the incarnation. And that includes how could God be a man. And by the way, that's not just a problem for oneness people. That's a problem for everyone who embraces the Bible. One of the greatest revelations for me was sitting down, realizing that everything we say about him being God and man, Trinitarians have to wrestle with. They just have to wrestle with two more people as well. 
How could he pray? How could he humble himself? How could he do all these things and be God? Right? Because he was man. All right? So how are you a man and how are you also God? The New Testament writers didn't have a lot of problem with these type of things. They knew Jesus was man. They knew he had a mission. And his identity unfolded before him. Show us the Father. And it'll satisfy us. Have I been so long time with you, Philip? You have not known me. When you see me, it's emphatic in the Greek, literally, because it's locative. The very moment you see me, you see the Father. Right. <clears throat> and they also reported in their epistles, oh, yes, and he's God. They had no problem with that. Why? Because before Abraham was, I am. It go, uh, me. It's the same tie to the Old Testament passage, I am that I am. The big deal was not that he was God. They believed in God. The big deal was God was manifest in flesh. So John 1 and 1 shows the word was not a separate person, but God making and creating covenant by becoming flesh. Intended, John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. Intention, plan, blueprint in the mind of the architect. But it had to be concreted. The plan had to take shape. And he, what? Verse 14. Became a man, right? And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What glory of the only? That's the lamb slain. Father, glorify thou me. That plan is now in place and come to pass. See, all of this coalesces and makes sense once you get the language of distinction right. So he is a man and he is God. We like going to the verses and saying he is God because uh, Brother Cox is back there. He's an evangelist. You quote a few oneness verses. They're going to bite the ceiling and swing from the chandeliers and run off. And we should. But there's also a revelation saying, oh, yes, and he's man. It takes an enlightening of our understanding as well to see the oneness of God, yes, the mighty God in flesh, but also that he's the man that purchased our redemption. It's not a different revelation. It's the same thing. God in flesh. There it is. Well, I'm going to, I know I've kind of, I heard Brother uh, Bill Davis say this from Macon, Georgia. He said, some of y'all don't think I'm teaching. He said, teaching's about explaining. Preaching is about motivating. So I'm explaining. And even when I get a little, ah, I'm still teaching. So hopefully uh, you connected with this today. All right, and I know it's, we're backed up. It's about mm, 12, 15. So I'm going to turn this over to Brother Palmer and, Amen. Praise the Lord.